Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream and supported this season by Patagonia. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Indisposable Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about the history and future of racism and anti-racism in the environmental movement. I'm here today with Matt Prindeville, Executive Director of Upstream. This conversation was inspired by our recent conversation we had with an Upstream board member, Latisse Lafeer, and the ongoing work that Upstream and the Break Free from Plastic movement have been involved in for a number of years now behind the scenes to make the transition from the classic stereotypical all-white environmentalism to more intersectional environmental justice and racial justice inclusive organizations, movements, and individuals working within the space. So Matt and I have been on this journey together for a number of years. When I'm not hosting this podcast, I work with the Upstream team and the Break Free movement. And this piece around culture shift, shifting away from white supremacy culture and toward anti-racist liberatory culture is a big piece of the work. So we thought it might be interesting for some of our listeners as the whole country grapples with this topic to hear us reflect on lessons learned, mistakes, and what's happening right now. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thanks, Brooking. I'm really excited to be here with you. So let's just jump in, Matt. I know that Upstream is is a couple years now into some deep cultural work around uh, dismantling white supremacy culture within the team, <laughs> to use the big, yeah. heavy uh, language. And we started this work a few years ago, and then George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter moment that's happening right now. And Upstream is also digging in again and looking at how can we deepen our commitments here. So I'd love to talk more and unpack that piece because I know a lot of organizations are struggling with those questions right now as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we found ourselves a couple of years ago having existed as an organization for, you know, we're, we're now, we were founded in 2003. So we're now, we've been at this for 17 years, um, but we found ourselves still being an all white organization. And, you know, I think we were founded by leaders in the U.S. Um, and Canadian zero waste movement that were all wonderful, progressive, amazing, you know, people, but they all came from similar backgrounds, right? Um, college educated, white, affluent parts of, of the United States and Canada. And I think for years, when, it, when we wanted a new board member or we were looking to fill a staff position, and admittedly, we, were, we, we, were, we are a small organization and we had, you know, even up until a few years ago, had been a very small organization um, with just a handful of staff. Um, you know, it was like, hey, I know somebody that would be good for that. I know somebody that would be great on the board. And it was just typically just running through the same networks. And of course, most of the time, that person was white. And... And this is in spite of the fact that we worked with lots of people of color, environmental justice organizations in our work, but that we hadn't taken the time to really think about what it means to be an all-white organization. And I think I didn't really understand until I went to a, a, a training on equity and inclusion that a big part of the problem was that we were just stuck in our networks. I think one of the things that also really blew this open for me was looking at dismantling racism's organizational spectrum from the all-white club to the affirmative action organization to the multicultural organization to the truly anti-racist organization and the attributes 
of each along the way. That really blew my mind because I thought, well, we're an anti-racist organization. We don't, we, we're not racists and we don't like racism. And we're, we want to dismantle that in the world. Just our thing is on plastics, right? Or it's on zero waste. But actually realizing that if we're going to have success on these broader environmental issues, our organization has to truly internalize what it means to be a multicultural anti-racist organization. And you can't do that if you're an all-white organization. You're not representative of the population of people, and you're not also representing the struggles that are going on out there in the real world. And your, your ability to influence the whole country, um, which is what we're trying to do, can't be there if you're just an all-white group. And so we took a number of concrete steps. We hired um, a consultant <laughs> to help us think through this. And, and the very first things that we did were to actually, she said, you have to come up with your rationale. What's your organizational rationale for why equity and inclusion and racial diversity is important to you? Um, and I remember, you know, working on this for days and workshopping it with the board. Um, and also it really, it had me look at my own experience of working within the zero waste movement and the climate movement and the environmental health movement and the plastic pollution movement. I've been, at, I've been at this for 20 years. So it really had me look at all of this. And then even I started reading articles and books about the history of racism in the environmental movement. And it just, you know, started to, to just blow the, the doors open for me. I, I guess I, I meant to put, throw some caveats in here. We are by no means a model <laughs> for, for folks that are listening. Um, you know, if anything, we are late to the party um, and we're, we're just in the beginning of where we need to be as an organization. So I also just want to make that clear. And also, you know, I, I thought some of these things could be fixed quickly, right? We'll just hire more people of color. We'll, we'll, we'll really have a, a, an intentional culture at Upstream where we're working dismantle white supremacy. We'll get a stronger and more racially diverse board. Um, it takes time. And a lot of it has to do with learning, relationship building, community building, um, you know, not trying to bring people in to support what you're doing, but really also trying to be a part of other people's struggles. That's a really um, big one for nonprofits, I yeah. think, because there's an evangelical quality for every organization with a mission, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to zoom in on the culture work that the team has been doing that sort of foundational for the ability to respond so quickly that I've noticed on the team right now. So I just want to reflect that, you know, this work started a couple of years ago and for the last nine months or so, the entire team would meet weekly and check in on one of the aspects of this particular handout that we've been using by Temo Kun that labels these different aspects of white supremacy culture. And one of the things I love about that handout is that if you take the title away, which is scary for a lot of people who are newer to the work, and you know, the first question you often get is, why do you have to call it that? Can't you just call this bad yeah, habits? Right, right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, but the bad habits that everybody looks at that list and recognizes, oh yeah, I don't want to have to feel like I have to do it all myself. Uh, I yep. don't want to have to always try to be perfect and. Um, there's, you know, there's what, 12 on the list. You've probably got a bunch in your head as well. And the team's been working through these. And what I think is beautiful about it is it's so easy for everybody, whatever their skin color and whatever their resistance to ideas around being a racist or, um, the language like white supremacy culture, there's a recognition that these patterns in professional culture 
are no fun for any of us, right? And that there's no. a different way of working that's more relational, more connected, more human that we all would like. And I've seen Upstream really work that consistently over the last year or so. And I'd love to hear you talk about what it's been like to work with your team on that. You know, I, I want to thank you, especially Brooklyn, because you, you brought um, Temo Kuhn's Dismantling White Supremacy Workbook to our team. And I, I remember the moment <laughs> that we had, right, because it was our staff retreat. And you, you didn't have us read it ahead of time. You passed, you passed it out. I remember this moment. You passed it out. And you said, don't read the all the all the texts and the words, just read the bolded headers. Just read the bolded headers, right? Which we're kind of talking about each part of um, kind of white supremacy culture. And you also started that by saying, what I've learned through my trainings is that white supremacy culture is not about skin color. It's about the color of your mind. It's about culture, right? And I also, you know, I go back to that wonderful um, Ta-Nehisi Coates quote of you know racism is the child it's not the father right racism came because white people decided that they wanted to exploit people of color and they invented a, a narrative they invented a story around it and that story has been perpetuated through our institutions and when i started to read all of those bold pieces i said okay white supremacy culture what's this what's this about i'm curious to learn about who these racists are um and then you know, it's got headings like defensiveness and uh, perfectionism and either or thinking, worship of the written word, all of these things that kind of define corporate culture in the United States. And, you know, the deeper I got into it, um, I mean, there's 12 or 13 different headings. And the deeper you get into it, you see that it's not just corporate culture, it's family cultures. <laughs> it's the culture of most nonprofits. And that was a major aha moment for me because it was like, wow, we have a lot of work to do. And so one of the things that came out of our staff retreat was we're going to look at this every week. Uh, different staff members could choose a section. We would literally have a moment of silence. We'd meditate for about a minute to three minutes. And then we'd have a conversation. We'd go around the room and talk about how it made us feel. And, you know, I think what it has done is it's helped us to see how these things are embedded in in work culture and how we can start to dismantle them. So, you know, I'm now noticing in team meetings, hey, you know, you're being a little defensive <laughs> or, hey, you know, that's kind of either or black and white thinking, you know, there's nuance here. Or are we spending too much time like focused on making this perfect with the written word as opposed to like really doing what we need to do to engage our audiences. And so I think that, that, um, you know, it's been an incredible practice for our team and for, for me personally. Um, and it's, I think, borne a lot of great fruit. I'm going to read the list. I've, I've pulled it up and I just, Please. for the readers, Please, yeah, I'm sure yeah, everyone's curious, but the bold items, perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, Worship of the written word, only one right way. I struggle with that one a lot. Paternalism, either or thinking. Power hoarding, which I think is a real tricky one, even in the nonprofit sector. Absolutely, absolutely. Fear of open conflict, individualism. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who can do X, Y, Z. Progress is bigger and more. That's a huge one. Objectivity. The idea that objectivity is God, essentially. Right to comfort, and that's a huge one, right, in terms of yeah. the recognition that 
being uncomfortable is sometimes crucial to the work. So, yeah. So, so that's sort of the, the foundational work that the team's been doing. And then we have this moment with George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter in the yeah. media landscape. And the whole team came together and like pretty quickly and clearly got on board with we need to do more, better, deeper. And so talk a little bit about, yep. you know, the conversations behind the scenes and what, what you guys have been looking at in terms of deepening the commitment to racial justice. You know, when, um, you know, when we learned of George Floyd's murder and when we learned of, you know, the people taking to the streets all around the country, um, we said, this is, this is, <laughs> this is not a, a stay in your lane moment. And we created a, a, a statement as a team, we all workshopped it together. Uh, we met on Monday morning. This was this was the focus of the meeting, and we said this is an all hands on deck moment, and we want to be out early on this. And I, at that point, I don't think we knew that the whole environmental movement would finally wake up. And I also want to credit Greenpeace because I think you know I talked to um, some of my colleagues there, uh, my friend John Hosevar, who said you know we are becoming, you know, we're, we're becoming a Black Lives Matter organization. They should just shut down their work and started figuring out how they could, how they could contribute and support in that moment. And um, we said, we, we want to be out front on this. And then I think the other thing that it just kindled in us is that it, for me, especially, it was a recognition that we have not done enough. We haven't been moving fast enough on this trajectory. Like we made this commitment um, and we've done some good things. We've changed our policies. You know, we're working, you know, with bringing different people onto the team and onto the board. But one of the things that I realized right after this happened was I looked at our podcast list, you know, speaking of because we're on the podcast right here. And we talked about like bringing, having more people of color, you know, on the podcast. This is a, a, a big feature that we do at, at Upstream. We're featuring heroes of the plastic pollution movement and people that are creating this beautiful new reusable future. And we, I think we'd overemphasized white people and white entrepreneurs and, and folks, and we were not bringing in enough people of color as, as, as heroes onto the platform that we already had, even though we talked about it, like we just hadn't done it. Um, and I know that, you know, for me, it was like, again, one of these, oh shit moments thinking there's a lot more that we have to do as an organization. And so what we've been looking at is, three tracks, like how do we show solidarity, not just in this moment, but as a long-term part of the organization's work internally? How do we move on the spectrum from we were, we were at the all-white club, we're no longer the all-white club, we're still not a multicultural organization, right? So we move from all-white to affirmative action to multicultural to anti-racist, and we are an affirmative action organization right now. And it pains me to say that out loud, but that's where we are in the process. And so what do we need to do internally to change that? And then externally with our work out there in the world, like how do we ensure that the projects that we're doing, the campaigns we're running and organizing, are that we're, we're directly working in communities and with people that aren't just progressive white coastal, um, you know, places that are like, yeah, plastic pollution sucks, you know, bring in the reuse revolution. You know, we, we need to be more engaging. And one of the other things that I've, that I've learned in my research, and, and I also want to thank my friends of color that have actually helped to educate me over the years as well, is that black communities, communities of color, they care about the environment more <laughs> than white people do. Like the, the polls and research show that because they're literally dealing with the pollution from the excesses 
of our corporate capitalist culture that does not care about them. And, you know, they're feeling the pains from environmental degradation and pollution way more um, than people in my affluent white community here in coastal Maine feel. And it, it, part of it, it's, it's also about addressing the sins of the environmental movement, which that's been my entire career has been working in this field and looking at the origins of the conservation movement in this country. Like that was a very racist movement. There were like white supremacists leading parts of the conservation movement and they wanted to lock out Native Americans. They wanted to lock out people of color into these. They wanted to lock out beautiful places and keep them pristine for wealthy white people. You know, you look at the, at the modern environmental movement that started really in the 1970s and this focus on protecting air, wildlife, water, and land, but that so much of that was about building this professionalized class of lawyers <laughs> and scientists and advocates that were mostly white. And you saw a, a similar movement coming up with environmental justice where, you know, these were community activists. These were grassroots activists that were like literally fighting for their homes, but they were often shut out of discussions. They were kept off the table from a lot of mainstream and major environmental groups. And I think because of that, I think that the main, the main reason why the environment is not a top of mind issue for the American people is exactly because of that reason. Like we've been splintered. And I think what I've seen over the last couple of years is a reckoning and a desire to change that. And I think what we're seeing the mainstream environmental movement do now in showing solidarity with Black Lives Matter in like actually, you know, committing to working on this is that I think we are finally reached um, a breaking point for where we're going to see some hopefully some widespread change. Yeah, I hope so, too. Uh, I know Break Free from Plastic itself is imperfect and learning. And um, it's been, in many ways, a gift to get to watch that journey of intentional integration and slowing down over and over to correct mistakes and correct the moments um, when the work has moved too fast and has not included the voices that need to be included in leadership and decision making. So that ability to say, oh, wait, we're not doing good enough yet and backtrack is so important and it's great to see it happening in in this space more and more. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you and I have been part of this evolution Brooking, um, since, since the beginning of the, some of the first conversations happening here in the United States about helping to build the break free, um, U S part of the movement here. And, you know, I, I remember some of those first meetings <laughs> that we were, that we organized, that Upstream helped organize. And, you know, you looked around the room, I think in our first meeting, we had one person of color out of, out of 30 some odd people. And we noted it as a problem. And then the next year, it was the same exact, same exact thing. And again, I think we did not make it, I'm speaking for myself at Upstream, like we didn't make it enough of a priority. This was just a major learning for us. And I also think that you know, some of our friends that, that were part of this movement that really saw this and, and provided real leadership in thinking like, how do we create a, not just a, a, an oceans, you know, predominantly white oceans plastics movement, but how do we actually engage around the entire um, supply chain for plastics production and disposal and use? And fortunately, you know, the movement was networked with groups that were connected and 
I remember the, the, the caucus meeting that we had in Houston, um, where we brought in people from all different parts of the plastics production and disposal and use uh, chain, all the different activists that were working in different parts of the plastics supply chain. And one of the very first things that we did was go on a toxic tour. Our friends at, the, at Tejas in Houston, which is this incredible environmental justice uh, organization there, like toured us around the petrochemical facilities um, in Houston and, and in and around the Gulf Coast. And I, I remember like for me, um, I've been to Houston a bunch of times, but I had never gone out and seen the scale of these petrochemical operations and the amount of pollution that's being emitted in these communities with kids and schools, like literally tucked in between, you know, the different factories um, and how air pollution and water pollution and cancer and learning disabilities, how all of this was just baked into what the culture was like for these communities. I'd read about it. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't seen it. I hadn't, I hadn't like just for a, a couple of, of, of days, you know, really been, been a part of that. And for me, I think, and for a lot of people that were, you know, coming from the ocean side or the environmental side, and we got to protect the environment, protect wildlife, like seeing firsthand the devastation that plastic was causing for people, for human beings. Another eye-opener for me was when I went to the Philippines, again, just because of the, the Break Free from Plastic movement coming together. And, you know, I'd used images from some of these uh, rivers and coastal areas in the Philippines and presentations that I'd given on plastic pollution, but I'd never been there, right? I'd never seen, like, the human impact of Western corporations selling goods wrapped in plastic into um, places that really weren't prepared to handle that, to do anything with that, and even to, to literally perpetuate problems like we're going to put everything in these little plastic sachets because this is what people can afford and not thinking about the environmental impact of that and the impact on people's health with these strewn all over the place. So, you know, I think that, you know, to get back to your, to your question here, I mean, it, it's, it has been an, an evolution and a journey for us. It's been an evolution and a journey for the, for the movement, but we are stronger together. And I think that for the first time, like our movement actually has the power to shift major corporations and major governments because we're all connected together around the world. And we're working on all of these strategic leverage points that we, we didn't have any of this power four or five years ago. Even though we're in a crazy time and issues like plastic pollution and climate change have somewhat been backburnered because of what else is going on, um, I think that what is happening out there in the world and this cultural awakening and this understanding that we need to do better bodes well for, for all these issues. There's this old quote, one of my first jobs out of college, I worked with Paul Hawkins, Natural Capital Institute, when he was working on this book, Blessed Unrest, that was a documentation of all the different nonprofit efforts in the world. And my job was to go through and assess, is something a systemic solution or is it a Band-Aid? And he has yeah. this metaphor where he talks about all these organizations are like the T cells, they're the white blood cells, they're humanity's immune response to our social yeah. and ecological crisis. And it feels like as we're talking, it's kind of occurring to me that there's been an autoimmune disease that's kind of been getting in the way and these fractures and yeah. disconnects between environmental yeah. and social justice. And to see, to see what I also really hope and want to hold the vision of what may be happening right now is a, is a real deep correction and, and beginnings of a healing of that challenge. Um, yep. and, and just as a small sort of historic note, 
on the idea of whiteness in America. You spoke to this earlier. It doesn't just come from a bunch of um, white people creating it to disenfranchise the slaves. Who It's because the slaves and the indentured servants from Ireland and Scotland and Poland and right, all over right. Europe got together and said, this is not okay, and they revolted together. And that's yeah. what scared the crap out of the the landowners in the South and the right. landowners got together with the senators and there's a historic document. It was sometime in the late 1600s where they said, okay, yep. we're going to call the, we're going to call all these people white and we're going to give them just a little bit more so that they feel better than, and they stop collaborating with this other group. And I feel like that's such an important piece to understand the whole is that the power Absolutely. when all of us who are suffering from these systems of oppression actually come together and can work through these racial pieces that have been yep. cre created originally literally to divide and to disempower, then then we can actually really truly change the system. So in my heart, I've been yeah. feeling excited recently about what's happening um, and, and a sense of hope, which I know is easier to come to as somebody who has white skin. Um, and, yeah. and I, yeah. I see so many people with white skin waking up in a deeper way. I see so many organizations doing the work that you guys are doing. The New York times book list the last few weeks made me cry. It was all, Amazing. all anti-racist reading lists. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a moment. And, and I, I hope that, you know, for everyone who's listening, we all have our areas of influence, right? And you're an executive director of an organization and, and you've been doing your piece of the work to reconcile and yep. recognize and, and change and shift and work with the team on shifting culture and dealing with the challenges that I'm sure still exist around funding and, and the different things that incentivize us to to not focus here, but we all have our, our places where we can continue to push. And Yeah, me too. You know, I, I think what you said about connection really being the antidote to um, the, the, what we, we, we live in a majorly disconnected world, right? And, and our economic systems, by keeping us disconnected, it's like they get to push more products. And I think the antidote to that is really that connection and that community building and that what we're seeing right now is it's authentic, right? This outpouring of solidarity for, for, for black Americans is truly authentic. And it's also coming across our typical divides, right? So it's not just progressive coastal white liberal Americans that are feeling this. You also are seeing infiltration into the way that conservative Republicans in the heartland feel about race. Like it's really, you look at the at the polling that's going on, it's really changing the way this country is operating. I'm from St. Louis and a friend of mine who who does research in Branson, Missouri, which is in the Ozarks and sort of the deep, deep heart of middle America was sharing about that there are people, literally there was a protest and there was a sign that said rednecks for black lives. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yes, now so we're getting beautiful. somewhere. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Yeah. 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 And, and we know there's, you know, we know there's going to be backlash too. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that one of the things that I've um, been worried about is that, you know, to solve these big problems, we actually need massive investment. And Latisse Lafaire, who was on the podcast recently with you, uh, Brooking, who's a board member of Upstream and an African-American woman, you know, she talked about that some of the big issues have been just generations of disenfranchisement and disinvestment. 
And that really, really stuck with me. I was also listening to um, Steve Colbert and uh, John Stewart last night. And, you know, John Stewart was talking about how white people in this country have, you know, black people have been fighting for equality all the while, while white people have been building equity. Like we've been building ownership, right? Ownership in land, in homes, in businesses, in an investment portfolio, and that there needs to be investment and enfranchisement of black people and, and people of color in this country. And I also think that's what we need to solve climate pollution. That's what we need to build better systems so we don't have all this plastic pollution. It's gonna require investment and it's gonna require commitment. And I think that's the thing that that we're, you know, we're wrestling with right now is that because the federal government had a completely anemic response to coronavirus and because we are in a situation where our country is getting hit the hardest or almost, you know, not maybe not the hardest, but getting hit extremely hard in comparison to the European Union and, and uh, Canada and other countries that have taken more forceful measures is that that investment that should have gone into like really righting the wrongs is going to prop up, you know, our society right now. And we're going to need a lot of investment on the back end when we get out of this. Yeah. So for any funders who happen to be listening, <laughs> I think that's a good a good reminder. You know, on the note of funding, I my mind is thinking about the reality that I've seen play out over and over in organizations where there's the good intent, and you spoke to upstream experiencing a version of this, you know, in the last few years. And then in reality, how some of these priorities get sidelined and they become backburner issues because the funding is in a different spot or other reasons that other issues seem more urgent. So I'd love to hear you reflect, you know, honestly hear from your leadership position of what do you feel like is really going to make that difference in being able to keep this work at um, the heart of our work at Upstream? You know, in the environmental grant making world, grantees submit proposals that are typically for a year, and we are asked to put a lot of outputs and outcomes that we're trying to create. Uh, and we're judged on those outputs and outcomes. And I think the grant maker has to look and say, I've got all these people applying for a limited pool of money. Which outputs and outcomes do I feel are the most impactful and which organizations do I feel can deliver on those outputs and outcomes? Do I believe in their ability to do what they say they're going to do? But a year is a long period of time in these days, right? And things are changing in this world month by month and even week by week. And even before COVID, even before Black Lives Matter, we're, we're living in a much faster paced world. I've been doing this for 20 years. And the scale, the rapidity of change and the, and the things that we have to contend with as nonprofit change making organizations, it's much, much faster um, than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. And so I've, I've even heard... Um, you know, some people that work in strategic planning say five-year plans are, are completely ridiculous. Like one-year plan is a good blueprint, but really focus on the next 90 days, like 90 days, you know, and in principles. Yeah. Focus on your principles, focus on the next 90 days and iterate, evolve, create, learn, get better and execute. Right. And I think that, that that's really what we're trying to do as an organization. And I, I do think that some of the stuff that we put in proposals three months ago, right before this all started, is somewhat stale. Um, we have done a lot of, of iteration to figure out like how to respond to COVID, 
we haven't figured out like what happens if the elections go south or what happens if there's like widespread unrest because people don't have enough food to eat, right? Um, what happens if like we reopen sports and then we've blown up the contagion all over again, you know, like as we're kind of seeing in some of the states that opened too early or opened in ways that weren't protecting the public. And so, you know, I think that that we are going to learn as a society how to get through this. And also for change makers, we have to learn how to evolve and adapt to what's going on right here and right now. And so especially around equity and inclusion, it, it takes time. Like you can't just like say, we're going to go talk to folks, we're going to bring our agenda in, and then we're going <laughs> to recruit them to what we what we want to accomplish. And we're going to hit the objectives in, in three, six, eight, 12 months. You know, If you really want to have an inclusive process, then we should go in with the idea that we want to have a conversation. Here's what we care about. We want to understand what you care about. How do we build power together? And then out of that, like then the plan emerges from the conversation, right? And I think too often it's the other way around. We've kind of got the year plan. We've, we approach social change like it's designing a new computer, right? Or a piece of software. And it's not. Um, it's messy. It takes time. And there are moments, right? One of, the, one of the great analogies that I've kind of held on to over the years is that I, it's particularly fun for me because I'm, a, I'm both a surfer and a sea kayaker <laughs> and a paddleboarder is that social change, environmental change, most of the time, it's like sea kayaking. Like you're on the ocean and you're kind of plodding along. But every now and again, a big wave comes along. And if you figure out how to surf that wave, you can make a tremendous amount of progress in a short period of time. But if you're not prepared and if you're not doing the work, you're going to get crushed, right? Or you're going to get left behind. And so I think that's a big thing for nonprofit organizations is you have to, you have to understand that when the waves are there, you're going to have to pivot, you're going to have to adapt, you're going to have to do everything you can, and your funders and your constituents are going to have to be there with you as well. That's what helps to build long-term societal change. And we've seen this now, like, I mean, black people have been organizing this country for so long. And I think what, what is finally pushing things over the edge is that there, there is a wave, there's an awakening happening. And it's, it's happening because of a lot of things, right? I'm not sure if, we would, if it would have happened without Trump in the White House. I'm not sure if it would have happened without you know, people being locked up in COVID and having all this time to like consume media and try to figure out what's going on, right? And because of these tragedies, right? Because of coronavirus um, and all the people we've lost to it, because of George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death and Ahmed Arbery's death and all of the sadness that has wrapped up in the loss and the trauma from these experiences, yet those experiences are creating the awakening that our country desperately needs to move forward. You know, like I, I'm even seeing conservative opinion leaders that I read on the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever liberal thing I'm reading. I'm seeing them respond and react to this moment in ways that are different. You know, like Mitt Romney taking to the streets is just a major moment, right, for, for this country. Uh, at least from, from the part of like white America, right? I don't mean to say for black America or brown America, but for white America, seeing like that Republicans are willing to actually stake their political careers on stepping out on this. Republican governors, you know, acknowledging this. NASCAR acknowledging this moment, right? I mean, this is, this is big. And I think that what we don't want to have happen is for the momentum to slow down. And I, you know, I was not intimately involved in Occupy Wall Street, but I was intimately involved in the anti-globalization movement prior to that in, when I was a young man. And to see, um, you know, to see how things can fizzle out 
right, over time and not get the change that you want without that sustained commitment. I think that one of the things that we're going to have to learn to do right now is how to build power. So how it's not just a hashtag movement. It's not just a uh, let's take to the streets or I'm going to post something cute on social media, but like how do we change laws and policies and boardrooms and, and organizations like upstreams, right? Like how do we get that level of commitment so that it's not like, Oh, it's a nice to have, but no, this is a need to have if we're going to actually, you know, move forward and accomplish the change that we want to have in the world. Yeah. And there's a lot that we can learn from the black organizing efforts that, as you said, have been ongoing for centuries at this point in terms of building power for a long game. And may it not be so long a game moving forward, but I don't think we can afford that on any of these issues. But there's a lot to learn about true organizing, true relationship and power building. And yeah, absolutely. So I'm realizing I'm supposed to be asking you some questions, too. And, you know, one of the ones that has kind of in my mind is about how I know that, that you have really worked to get a lot of training around anti-racism work and that sure, that's a benefit to your facilitation practice, but it's certainly not necessary. Like you're not working for an organization where somebody's saying, okay, we're, we're going to do this anti-racism training. Everybody's got to show up. Like this is something that you've chosen to do. And because of that, you know, you've brought a lot to our conversation at Upstream from what you've been learning. And I want to just, you know, understand a little bit more about, about your commitment and what it was that drove you to do that. Because you, you did this, you know, before the re- recent events, like you committed to make this a part of your, of your learning and of your work and of your practice. And then secondly, to talk a little bit more just about like, what were the, your big aha moments? You know, I know I talked a lot about my aha moments along this process, but I want to hear some stories. I want to understand like what, where the big moments were for you as, as you've been engaged in this process in such a deep way. Mm. Um, yeah, there's been a number of different moments and, um, I, you know, I had some moments growing up that were significant. I used to work, I, I went to a very privileged private high school in St. Louis, which is, you know, historically one of the higher racial tension cities in this country. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was involved in this program called Aim High that brought kids in from the public schools in the city who were basically not getting an education in the public schools because it was so bad at the time. And they brought the kids in in the summer to the schools, the private schools. And I worked in that program and sold to my older brother and um, I have some good friends still who went through that program and their personal life stories of what they had to overcome just to get an education, you know? And, yeah. and, and to me, yeah. so I had a lot of early experiences in my school and high school recognizing that I came from extreme privilege and that there was um, something really wrong with, with how we uh, relate between black and white in America and middle America where I grew up. And then I, I think like many, I kind of didn't make it a focus in my life because I didn't have to, you know, that's white privilege right. in action. And later I got really into personal healing journey work and my mother's Irish and my father has an English background. So I got really interested from my own writing life and side projects in um, recognizing that there's a colonizer colonized story there. And when I was in college, I studied indigenous cultures from all over the world. And I was really interested in learning about 
different ways of being, knowing, and organizing ourselves than the one I grew up in. I always felt like the the world I grew up in was a little bit soulless, and there was something mm-hmm. off about that. Mm-hmm. So then my career focused on, you know, uh, ecological economics and what are the systemic leverage points that we can tackle to try to change the system, but it was informed by different indigenous traditions and I got into my own indigenous tradition story and something about that created this link. Um, There's a course with a woman named Sandra Kim on healing internalized white supremacy culture. And there was an acknowledgement in that course that part of the work is liberating all of us from this oppressive culture, whether you're whatever your skin color. And if you have white ancestry, your ancestry is not actually white. If you go back far enough, there's indigenous, right. like right. connected, healthier versions of land right. connected, community connected ancestry, even for the British, although that's one of the earlier right. colonizers as are, you know, the, the Romans. So I got really interested in my own personal lineage work. And I think that that just made something click. And the, the experience that like everybody earlier in the process, it's uncomfortable. It would make me cry. I mean, I had all the classic checkbox white fragility responses. And then that lineage piece helped me kind of get under that layer of the soil. And Mm -hmm. it started feeling Mm -hmm. healing and holing and empowering in a way that no other healing work I've ever done has. And I've done lots of different kinds of healing work. So that just lit something really deep in me. And I have a passion at this point for this is liberatory work for everybody. And it's about helping all of us kind of reclaim our souls at the deepest level for me. Um, And there's just basic social system, structural things we need to work on, like what's going on with prisons in America. And there's all sorts of work to do. I also work on diabetes, which is, you know, another condition that is not primarily, but majority affecting black and brown communities because there's all these social determinants of health. So at root to me, it's about liberation, and that's kind of what keeps the fire alive for me. Liberation and healing. And, and so, you know, because you've actually engaged in, in studying, I mean, you're, you're paying to go to trainings, you know, you're engaging in all the trainings that some of your clients are doing. What were the moments where you just, like, what were the things that kind of blew your socks off and said, I know you said you, you started with kind of the classic white fragility responses to being challenged around a lot of these things. But as you've gotten deeper into it, like where, where were the, where were the moments, right? Um, you know, the, the moment in the workshop when you were like, wow, that, that is something I need to be paying attention to, or, oh, this is really going to help my client. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's always these blind spot moments that it's, easy to get nervous and uncomfortable knowing that that's going to happen at some point, you know, you're going to get called out and you're going to do it wrong. And back to the Temo Kun handout, you know, that fear of doing it wrong and being imperfect is probably the biggest constraint and the willingness to make mistakes and be messy and be exposed in the biases that still exist in our thinking. So I was in a conversation with some colleagues over email about something that I shouldn't get into details about, but I was struggling with what was the professional response to this tricky situation. And then one of my colleagues who was way deeper in the work than I am and who now does training on this herself said to me, you know, even the idea of professionalism, you might really want to look at that. And I got this, I just, it just was one of those moments where I just thought, she's right. There's something here. And I've been working my whole career to sort of 
create more authenticity in work. And that's always been important to me. And just seeing the way that my own ideas of what is professional were so wrapped up in my own sort of white enculturation was a big one for me. Um, and I'm still you know, working through it. <laughs> I think, I think professionalism is, is by design exclusive, right? So it's like, there's a standard of dress. There's a standard of speech. There's a standard of decorum of manners that is by design. It's, it's affluent white culture. And there's a homogeneity to that, right? And like an expectation that you might be a person of color or you might have a different background, but when you walk into the boardroom or you're giving the presentation that it's got to be like this, you know, it's got to fit into the way that modern corporate culture is. And I, I think one of the challenges with that is that it's not that you can't have excellence, right? It's just that excellence is being defined by a certain perspective and a very limited perspective. And I think one of the things back to the Tema Okun handout is the perfectionism piece, right? And if for whatever reason that perfectionism is challenged, it's like being defensive around it. Well, this is, you know, we have to produce or got to, you so know, get deeply the threatening. Like when we really look yeah, at it, right. it feels like right. we are wrong. And it's usually a really young part of us that had something to do with yeah. the way we were parented, you know? Yeah. So it's, these ideas, they touch on deep pieces and to be able to actually do that work. And I, the other piece I want to say that another example of what blew me away, and I talk about this all the time, but haven't here is, um, you know, I have this background in healing arts, which is a somatic physiological approach to doing yep. work that a lot of people do in therapy at more of a cognitive level. And yep. um, there's a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Risma Menikim. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And that book blew me away. And it was mm -hmm. such a beautiful analysis of the way that racial trauma lives in our bodies and is actually mm -hmm. passed down by generations. You know, there's, there's stories, people whose grandparents experienced famine have hunger issues that have no correlation with their experience yeah. with food scarcity in their own lives. And yeah. so... Yeah. He he invites in this book, and he has an online course as well. I recommend every listener go check it out, read the book, listen to it on audio. Um, and he talks about the experience at a somatic level of being in a white body in America and a black body in America and in a police wow. body in America and the mm -hmm. way that these traumas manifest subtly. And, you know, when I, that book really brought some things together for me. And when I see, you know, what happened with Amy Cooper and the birding incident in New York, that story shocked a lot of people because she's a she's a liberal. She she doesn't believe in, you know, she would yeah, think right. of herself as not racist, but that's the real work. If you're not doing yeah. that like deep physiological nervous system as well as sort of family constellation deep aspect of the work, then yeah. in the moment the response is whether you're a police officer or a white person, um, the responses may not be what you think they're going to be. And, right. and then the other part of that for me is we're not going to get to the root of the racial issues in our country by talking about it only. It's awesome that everybody's learning and thinking, but we have to recognize that even that frame is missing something. And we have to invite in multiple ways of knowing. We have to invite in the body. We have to invite in our relationship with ancestry, which has been deeply yeah. fractured yeah. for most Americans, almost by definition. We've all came here from yep. somewhere else, except the Native Americans yep. who we mostly killed when we got here. So. 
there's a lot to work with and it's it's like a big field of collective trauma <laughs> and to recognize yeah. those trauma frames but it's also exciting because i feel like we're learning as a culture we're starting to learn how to work work with it in new ways absolutely so what were the what were some of the things that came out because you know we, we know that you work with us, but you have other clients as well that are also engaged in this work. What were some of the things that came out of the training where you were like, this is, you know, my, my, my clients need to hear this. Mm. I think I just spoke to one that's really important to me, the somatic piece, because especially yeah. in the workplace, again, people don't make space and don't slow down to have ways of knowing and processing that aren't cognitive. So Right. I think that's really important. I talk to some of my colleagues and they say the deepest pieces of that they're committed to in terms of supporting um, this shift is bringing nature and poetry into the work. No more meeting wow. in office spaces with flip charts only. Like to yeah, actually yeah. deepen the practice of, of doing our strategic thinking, our strategic planning, our ways that we relate mm -hmm. with each other in a more embodied way. And that might seem far-fetched, but... I actually think they're pretty deeply connected in terms of um, oh, yeah. moving forward. You know, I just thinking about um, our friends, uh, Tommy and Brian from the Dancing Foxes and how they like to bring in artists and uh, poets and creatives into their workshops with social change organizations and environmental organizations that like that piece of like art and creativity and storytelling and you know, I remember when we did the retreat back at my house here a couple of years ago that, we, you know, one of the things they were, they wanted to do is make sure that we could have a fire pit somewhere, right? And I think that there is something to be said for, yeah, just getting out of the the stale environments of office buildings and our and now our home offices and, and doing this work. And we're actually going to have to figure out how to do this work, you know, probably at, at distance <laughs> with each other or bring our laptops out to, out to the backyard or whatever. But, you know, I think we're going to have to figure that out. Yeah, we're going to have to find ways to bring the yeah. body onto Zoom because <laughs> yeah. this is a new reality. The other thing I wanted to say in terms of like tips for everybody on this work. I feel like one of the most important things, and I include myself in this, I feel like I'm still new to it, you know, but is recognizing that it's going to be uncomfortable. Like this idea that we can get away with getting through the process unscathed somehow and not right. feel discomfort, right. not have to deal with making mistakes and getting feedback and, and, and recognizing that the way we're behaving has actually been hurtful for others. Yeah. Like, just yeah, yeah. get it preparing for that reality because I think what, at least in my experience, without really being willing to make mistakes, what we do instead is freeze and do nothing. Yep. So yep. that's another really important spot that if you want to address white silence, which is another Robin DiAngelo term on the list, mm -hmm. you got to be mm -hmm. willing to do it wrong, make mistakes and be uncomfortable. Otherwise, silence and the sitting back is what the body is going to do. Yep. And also like to be prepared to be called out and, and to not be defensive. I think that was, you know, a major, major learning for me. I think for years I started like, whenever I would have conversations about race with people of color, I, I would feel the need to tell the story of how my best friend growing up was black and how I grew up, you know, going to a minority white church and grew up singing hymns with black and brown people and had this, you know, my dad was a diplomat to Brazil. So we had Brazilians and South African people coming through my house all the time. So I was always just like, wanted to just paint the picture like, hey, I am not a racist. Like I grew up with people of color. And what struck me was like, 
yes, that was all true. And the whole thing when growing up was don't see color, right? And to be like, hey, the struggle of Martin Luther King, like, you know, that was some big things changed and black and brown people have better lives now. But to actually really not even peel back the onion or explore enough, like I would go to some of my friends' houses and such, and I would see that like I had an easier life than they did, but I didn't really put it together that it was structural, right? Or that my privilege was actually keeping them from getting ahead and moving forward in life. And I think, you know, for me, that was a big thing. I mean, I still fall into that trap sometimes as, oh, you know, we're, we're getting into a conversation about race and I'm a privileged white guy of a certain age. And, you know, I want everybody to know that I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the right team, right? Um, uh, and, and, I always, and I always have been. And of course, the Trump presidency has caused me to question lots of things about my background and my privilege. Um, but I think this work of being engaged in, in anti-racism training for a couple of years now, and then just feeling my commitment really deepen over the events of the last month and recognizing actually how little I've, I've done personally and professionally to advance the causes of my black friends and colleagues. And as an organization, recognizing that we have a platform upstream as a platform you know we're we're networked and engaged with people all over the world we can use that platform to not just solve plastic pollution but to help dismantle white supremacy and systemic racism at the same time and so that that's been our commitment it's only been deepened and um another question just thinking about you mentioned white fragility. Like, so have you had a moment where you've been called out or have you had an experience where even if you weren't called out publicly that you, you felt like you should have been called out? Well, you know, one of the, one of the more emotionally impactful experiences was um, one of my best friends from college is she's a Indian American who often gets labeled as black. And Mm -hmm. we moved to the Bay area together. I was in my early twenties and we were super close and, she just went away and it was very personally hurtful to me. And it took her years to tell me that part of why she went away was because she had uh, started engaging in uh, social justice work. And most of her communities were other black and brown people. And she was really having a hard time dealing with her privileged white friends from college who were clueless. And um, that really landed deeply for me because you know, I lost a personal friendship at, at a certain mm-hmm. level because of an, an ignorance and just recognizing it was so hard for her to even tell me that, you know, and I think wow. that's a really important piece for those who are gifted with feedback to just think about how hard it is for somebody to give that feedback, how much emotional yeah. effort it takes to say, I'm having trouble relating with you right now because you're only thinking about yourself, for example. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think that can really help with the defensiveness thing and and just being grateful for the feedback, recognizing that <clears throat> impact and intent are different. And, you know, it's interesting. I actually called her a few years ago and I said, I get it. <laughs> like I, having done more yeah. of the work myself and even with white skin, I started to have that experience of feeling really irritated and frustrated being in white spaces where, you know, someone just got shot and nobody's talking about it. And and it's just an obliviousness. So I feel like I was in that place for a while before I kind of woke up and started paying more attention. And that's, that's one personal story that comes to mind. That's very powerful. 
Yeah, that I- impact and intent is such a powerful thing. And I think that that this goes to just human interactions in general. We're like, but I meant, but I said, but I, you know, and the reality is, is that you can avoid those situations by actually understanding your impact. Like you can avoid, you can avoid those, you can avoid a situation where you non-intentionally hurt someone by doing the work that, that's necessary to learn. Um, and I think too, like we have both, my wife and I have both made this commitment that we're just not going to be quiet anymore. Like when we hear or see racism in action that we are going to, we're going to call it out. Like we are going to be allies. Like this is not, not a stay in your lane moment. And so I think that that piece of impact versus intent, you can shift that by really understanding like what the real world and lived experiences are of people that are different than you. Yeah. And recognizing that it is emotionally exhausting work and that um, that is part of our work to do is white people is to help educate other white people. And um, there's also value in caucus space, as it's sometimes talked about for white people who are learning to get together and talk about the places that are confusing. And, you know, a lot of people would say it's it's a lot better to do that than to reach out to your black and brown friends to be advisors because right. they get that a lot and they've been dealing with that their whole lives. But as there are more, black, more um, white people who have done enough of the work to be able to help other people with earlier phases in the process, you know, that's our work. I was just reading an article the other day um, by someone who said, white people, our anger is not yours. Don't appropriate it. And your job is to be the greeter give people tea and cookies and deal with their defensive and white centering comments. And as much as it annoys you, that's your part of the work. You're going to get them up to speed. (laughs) And then like, think of us as the trainers. You're like the assistants and don't bother the trainer unless the trainer is choosing to, to speak. And I think there's there's something to that approach too, to recognize that there's kind of a, there's a whole fate. It's a, it's a whole journey. Right. And that wherever yeah. we are in our learning process to think, you know, where are the places that we can impact and influence and support people moving along the journey for our shared liberation at the end of the day. Yeah. As you're sharing that, I'm just realizing that, uh, you know, I watched the daily show piece last night where, um, Roy Wood Jr. There was a skit of him, you know, with a white friend calling with another another question about what it means to be woke in this moment. And you know, don't don't answer the phone. Like, get them Black Lexa, which was you know, like how how to educate white people to like understand what the exper- lived experiences are for black people. And so, you know, I certainly have heard that that you know, black people have got their own you know, they're, they've got their own stuff going on right now. And the last thing we need to do as white people is say, hey, help me learn more, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I know Upstream has been sharing resources. Um, on my website, for anyone who's interested, emergence-collective.net on the more page, I have a whole way more than you ever want to read document on understanding white privilege and racial equity, uh, specifically for people who do facilitating, but a lot of the resources are relevant for other groups. And I think people are getting inundated with opportunities to learn right now, which is great. And these conversations and these sort of talking about the stuff that feels sensitive and a little difficult is really important too. So it's good to get a chance to practice that out loud with you here, Matt. Ricking, it's been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, every minute of it and look forward to doing this more with you in the future. And that's our show. 
If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.